verses 4 through 17. You are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through you we name your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually. We will give thanks to your name forever. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made you have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and the reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger, all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. This is the word of the Lord. All right, this is new. Everything's new. Everything takes a few seconds longer. What do you think? Huh? Is this going to work? <laughs> if you're new, my name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, the Painted Door. And welcome to our new church home. Um, a lot of people put in a lot of time and effort to make this happen, and we're here, and it feels good to be in this space with all of you, tucked in cozily. Uh, we will eventually learn how to sit in the front row. That is my, <laughs> my main goal in life um, for our church, and this podium perhaps makes it slightly easier. There's a little bit of protection there for you. Um, now, I don't want to make too much of this new space because... This is just a building, as you know, and we remain the same church, uh, same group of forgiven sinners, same joys, same sorrows, same friendships, same relational strains. All of it uh, is still who we are as a people. And so in that sense, really not much has changed uh, as we move in here. Uh, On the other hand... I don't want to make too little of it, uh, because we are embodied people. That is to say, we are made of material stuff, and we live in material places. And so we have decided that this particular material place, this particular pile of bricks and beams and dust, will be our church home. And there's something holy about that. There's already begun a process of making memories in this space. And it's the memories of God's movement in and among us as a people that will render this space holy to us and sacred to us uh, in the years to come. We believe that God will have us here for some time, at least five years, unless we default on our lease. Let's not do that. Um, (laughs) 
And so it's going to be some time. And so the process of making new memories here will be much like the process of making memories that we went through in our previous space, Wells High School, where we were for four and a half years. And we have many sweet memories there, not only in our Sunday gatherings, but for those of you who volunteered there in the halls, and many of you will continue to do that as we now gather for worship over here. But the process of building new memories here has already begun As many of you know, many of you were here uh, just a couple of weeks ago or last week when we celebrated weddings on both of the previous two weekends. And so certainly for those people and those family members that were here to celebrate those weddings, uh, the space is already sacred. Of course, the many gatherings that we had here before construction and then during construction, we've already worshipped here on several occasions as a people Uh, And so the space is already special to many of us, and I'm hopeful that it will become special to all of us over the coming season. It's likely that at some point over these next five years, we will experience perhaps a funeral here, or at least a memorial service here. Uh, It's likely that we'll see more weddings here. It's also likely that we'll have many more opportunities to celebrate new birth here. I don't think the four that we celebrated today will be the last, judging by the bellies, the youth, and the virility that I see in the, uh, in the room. Uh, so we've determined to make this space a place of fellowship with God and a place of fellowship with each other, uh, and that's a holy thing. It's a thing that's worth celebrating. This is our holy church home. Now, you might be wondering, why exactly would you leave fluorescent lights, say, in a holy church home? Or, um, what's this giant HVAC thing doing hanging down in the middle of our holy church home? Or, did anyone else notice that that strange contraption we entered into the space through today was not a door? (laughs) Isn't this church called the Painted Door? (laughs) We couldn't get doors up in time. Well, (laughs) actually, I wanted all of that to be done very differently, but Sam insisted that it be done exactly like that. No, come on. I'm I'm kidding. Uh, Actually, I wince every time I hear someone say to Sam, have you thought about maybe? (laughs) Have you thought about maybe? putting doors on the sanctuary? Have you thought about maybe putting windows into the children's rooms? Have you thought about maybe? I know she can handle it, uh, but just so you all know, yes, she's thought about it (laughs) a lot. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) many of those things are still in process and we'll be moving in probably for the next several weeks, potentially months getting the space just how we want it. Um, But it's appropriate today that we are moving in with all of these things sort of half done uh, because it just so happens that our preaching calendar for today has us on the theme of embarrassment. Go figure. All right, The Lord always seems to line it up uh, just right. Uh, And quite frankly... It is embarrassing to open a new church home for the painted door 
without doors on the front. Uh, I know you are gracious people, um, but part of me wants to go on explaining why that is and talking to you about how three to four week delivery time became seven week delivery time. And Jordan suggested that I make a joke about how we had him removed to go get painted. <laughs> but that's a dad joke, so I won't make it. <laughs> but if, in case you didn't notice, I just slipped all that explanation in. And I feel this sort of visceral urge to do that. It's not just that I wince when someone questions Sam as to the state of the space. I wince when someone questions me. Um, because embarrassment is among the emotions that we try the hardest to avoid in our lives. It's among the experiences that we least want to endure in our lives. It's right up there with like death and constipation, right? Um, I think actually most of us would rather experience the latter of those two things than experience a little bit of embarrassment. We'd probably rather have the flu and puke than have people start to think less of us and be embarrassed, right? We wanted painted red on the doors, and I got red in the face, right? That's another dad pun for the day. That one didn't work. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, I would challenge all of you, maybe for the sake of this time, to recall some of the more embarrassing moments in your life. Uh, You may be able to do that readily. You may not be able to do that readily. Perhaps you've blocked them out from memory. I thought about sharing some of the most embarrassing moments from my life. I figured it'd be good for a a laugh. But then I thought better of it, (laughs) because haven't I suffered enough already? No, we love to move embarrassment into the category of humor as much as we can. We we tend to do that with all of the most painful stuff in our lives, right? And so we'll find moments or experiences of embarrassment that we can share and make light of through laughter. But in truth, the most embarrassing things that we experience in our life we will not share, maybe ever, because they are no laughing matter. Uh, The most embarrassing things we experience in our life, they hit very close to home. They are things that we guard and treasure and protect, much like we would protect our our own life. What I want to do today is to offer a category for facing some of those Moments, some of those experiences that have most humiliated us. Because it's often in facing those great humiliations that we find ourselves coming face to face with God, or at least discovering the face of God. It's actually in those things that we spend our most amount of energy and time trying to avoid that God is often most present in, most available to be known. The great tech entrepreneur, Douglas Engelbart, who some of you may know was the inventor of the computer mouse, pretty successful inventor, he once said famously, the rate at which a person can mature 
is directly proportional to the embarrassment he can tolerate. I think Engelbert was onto something there. He's connecting toleration of embarrassment with maturity, or in other words, humiliation is among the greatest keys to growth. Humiliation may be the greatest key to growth. That would resonate with much of what the scriptures have to say on it. Now, why are we talking about this today? (laughs) Pastor Mark, can't we just have one day where it's fun and light and frivolous? No. Um, We're actually in the middle of the season of Lent, and we've, over the course of Lent, been trafficking through the Psalms of Lament. And Psalm 44, one of the Psalms of Lament, actually deals head-on with this theme of embarrassment. And if you came along this psalm as you're reading through the scriptures, you might not think that initially because the psalm starts out innocently enough. I'll read starting in verse 4. We read, You are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. Though we push through you, we push down our foes. Through your name, we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me, but you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God, we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Okay, this psalm begins not sounding at all like a psalm of lament, sounding more like a psalm of praise, a psalm of thanksgiving, up through verse 8. But then in verse 9, it takes a rather sharp turn, and we read this. But you have rejected us and disgraced us, and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter, and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them, You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. What's happened here in the life of Israel is that they have gone all in in putting their confidence in God. They have completely invested themselves. They've put all of their stock into Yahweh as their trustworthy Savior, as the one who will meet them on the battlefield, as the one who will deliver them. And here they find themselves in some military conflict, and it appears to them that their God has left them flapping in the wind. He has not come through for them. They're getting militarily whipped, and they're taking a rather public beating. All of the nations that oppose God, all of the nations that mock God, all of the nations that Israel has tried to stand up to and say, no, this is a God who is trustworthy, this is a God worth following, 
All of those nations are now being vindicated and Israel is being made a laughingstock. The nations that are opposing them are saying to them, where is your God now? Where is this one that you said would deliver you? And Israel is losing out on any taste of vindication and enduring this mockery from their most hated foes. Now, it's important to note that this is not happening in this case because of some faithlessness on the part of Israel. There are occasions in the Old Testament, there are occasions in the Psalms when we can see correlation between Israel wandering away from God and facing some kind of discipline or hardship as consequence for that. A discipline from their loving father, a correction from their loving father. That's not the case here. We read in verse 17, All this has come upon us, though we have not forsaken you, and we have not been false to your covenant. The text goes on and intimates repeatedly in verse after verse how Israel has been faithful to Yahweh. They've followed Yahweh. They've served Yahweh. They've worshipped Yahweh. They've heralded his name among the other nations. And yet, nevertheless, they find themselves in this place where they are left flapping in the breeze, seemingly abandoned by God. They've put their necks out there, and he's let them be chopped off, in essence. He's not backed up their claims. He's let them down. Now, Israel is getting taunted. They're getting humiliated every day. And this is provoking them to outrage against Yahweh. Let me ask you, have you ever experienced a sort of embarrassment that provoked you to outrage? I think actually... That's the measure of true embarrassment. If you're not outraged, you might not have been embarrassed. Because embarrassment always causes you to point the finger of blame somewhere. There's times when our embarrassment causes us to rage against ourselves, to go into self-loathing. There's other times when someone has not held up their end of the bargain And as a consequence of that, something has blown up terribly in our face. And there is an outrage there. There is an offense there. There is an anger that is provoked there. That's what's happening here for Israel. I tried to think of some example in Scripture that could illustrate that kind of outraged embarrassment well. Here, this particular text, we don't know the exact story that led up to the writing of Psalm 44. So I was trying to think of some other story in the scripture that could illustrate this for us. And I I think I found one, but it sort of illustrates it in reverse. And that is a story that comes to us by way of 1 Kings And it's a great famous story of the prophet Elijah having a public showdown with the prophets of the false god Baal. It's this famous scene recorded in 1 Kings where Elijah challenges King Ahab to call all the nation of Israel to Mount Carmel to witness him go at it 
against the prophets of a false god. Elijah is the prophet of Yahweh. He's the prophet of the true God. He calls for this public showdown with these prophets of the false gods. And Israel gathers on Mount Carmel. Elijah calls for two bulls to be slaughtered by way of sacrifice. He calls for two altars to be constructed, for the bulls to be laid on these altars. And then he proposes that these prophets begin to pray. Elijah says, I will pray to Yahweh. You 450 prophets of Baal, you pray to your God. And we will be vindicated one or the other of us, depending on which of these sacrifices bursts into flames. And so the story goes, the prophets of Baal build their altar, put the bull on the altar. They begin to pray to their god, Baal. They pray for many, many hours. Their praying grows more and more desperate. They cut themselves as was the ancient cultic practice, trying to incur the sympathy and care and voice of Baal, some sign that he is real and alive and hearing them, and nothing happens. They are praying now into the afternoon hours. They are embarrassed. They are outraged. And Elijah begins to mock them. He says, maybe Baal is having an extra long divine time in the facilities, right? Or maybe he's just not even there. The prophets finally have their time and it ceases and it's Elijah's turn. And Elijah here has backed himself into a corner. The whole nation of Israel is gathered. The prophets of Baal have just been proven false. Baal has just been proven a powerless God to answer the cries of 450 of his prophets. Elijah is all in here on the goodness and power of God and God coming and answering and making himself known. And perhaps because he's so all in, he figures, why not just go all the way? And he orders that jars of water be poured on top of his altar, on top of this burnt offering, on top of this bull, on top of the wood that's been prepared for the fire, he digs a trench around the altar and fills the trench with water. The whole altar is soaking wet. The people are not going to be happy if nothing happens when Elijah prays. The people have been whipped up into a frenzy. This whole showdown has come to pass because the people of Israel have gone off worshiping the false gods of Baal and Asherah. One of those false gods has just been proven false. The people here are agitated. If Elijah fails, it's likely the end of him. And so he's backed himself into a corner, and it's at that moment that he offers this very simple prayer to God, recorded in 1 Kings chapter 18. He says, Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Very simple prayer. And what happens? Verse 39, Then the fire of the Lord fell, 
and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Now that is one great vindicating moment of faith, if there ever were one. You can imagine no greater vindication for your faith than this kind of public spectacle where Elijah has backed himself into a corner and counted on a once-in-a-lifetime, once-in-a-millennium kind of miracle taking place in order to vindicate that his faith is in the one true God and, oh, by the way, likely spare his own life. This is the ultimate moment of vindication. Now, if you want to know how the Israelites felt in Psalm 44, just imagine that Elijah story and nothing happens. Yahweh doesn't move. Yahweh doesn't speak. There is no revelation of God. He shows himself to be no more powerful than the false gods of Baal. That's the situation in Psalm 44. It's a situation of near betrayal, or at least felt betrayal, on the part of Israel. Let me ask you, which sort of experience do we prefer? (laughs) That's an easy one. We want the Elijah moment. We want our faith to be vindicated. We want God to step in, prove that we've been right all along. Prove our enemies wrong. But I want to show you something curious. It's in the very next chapter of 1 Kings, chapter 19. Elijah finds himself backed into a corner again. This is within days of having experienced this enormous moment of his faith being vindicated. Within days of that, the queen Jezebel has put a hit out on his head, and Elijah has had to flee into the wilderness in order to escape with his life. And we read this in 1 Kings chapter 19. It says, He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. This is within days of the Mount Carmel moment, within days of the greatest demonstration of faith vindicated probably in the history of the world. Can you imagine a scenario? Do you know a story where faith was vindicated? Maybe Noah, the story of Noah, but these are once in a millennium kind of vindication moments. And within days of that, Elijah is suicidal. He wants to give up. He sees no more reason to put any confidence in God whatsoever. Within days of one of the greatest vindicating moments of all time, he's saying, it's over for me. It's not worth trusting in you. By contrast, 
Listen to the closing verses of Psalm 44. After Israel has just experienced the opposite of Elijah, the apparent failure of God to show up, they've expressed outrage over their embarrassment. And now listen to how this psalm ends. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. What is that? That's faith. That's a prayer of faith. That's a prayer of true and desperate faith. There is real belief there being offered in that prayer. Real belief that God is real, that God is present, that his steadfast love still matters, that he's good to his word. In the wake of being utterly failed by God, the Israelites are praying that he would still come to their rescue, that he's still worth hoping in, still worth praying to. And so on the one hand, we have Elijah who tastes tastes this greatest faith-vindicating moment ever. And on the other, we have the nation of Israel whose faith has appeared to embarrassingly fail them. And which of these is compelled to greater trust in God? In which of these does faith rise? Today is a sort of faith-vindicating day for our church, isn't it? There have been many bold steps of trust in the Lord that have led us from being a broke bunch of college students to being a slightly less broke bunch of just graduated people. (laughs) And here we are having moved into this while unfinished, lovely church home, a place to call our own. But I promise you, If our faith is in faith-vindicating moments like this one, if your faith is in faith-vindicating moments that are particular to your individual Christian life or some other moment that's affected some small portion of our community or even our entire community, if that is the case, then we are on very shaky ground. Because I promise you, many more Psalm 44 moments are coming. And the question is whether our faith can survive those. Anyone can have faith when it's being vindicated for all to see. Is our faith in a more sure foundation 
than something so shaky as that. I can promise you this, it won't be long now before identifying, merely identifying as a Christian in the Western world will be very embarrassing. Some of you may already be experiencing that. You may already be the silly one in your office. You may already have experienced some mistreatment from neighbors or coworkers, whatever it may be. People of our faith have enjoyed a place of respectability in the Western world for centuries, but culture ebbs and flows, and there is no question that the current tide of the Western world is moving toward hostility toward Christians and mockery toward those who uphold the historic faith. I promise you, if it has not already happened to you, identifying as a Christian will begin to carry with it a heavy social cost. And when that day comes for you, it may well appear that God is rather inactive. That he is not coming to your aid. That you've put your neck out in some way and he's not standing up for you. He's letting the mockers and the revilers and the taunters have their day. I don't say that to fearmonger. In fact, just the opposite. God is absolutely sure of the story that he means to tell across each one of our Christian lives, across the life of this particular local church, and across the greater life of the greater church in the West. He knows exactly what he is doing. In fact, God is leading us into the very place where he has always lived. There is no one in the world who is more familiar with being mocked, reviled, taunted, and a laughingstock than our God. And he tolerates it. We see that historically in the face of Jesus Christ, who was mocked and laughed, laughed at, reviled, taunted throughout his life. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is showing us who God has always been. God has always been one who is mocked and reviled and taunted and laughed at. And he has always been one who is ever willing to put his neck out again and endure it more. Even when it breaks his neck. Even when it costs him dearly. This is who he is. This is where he lives. And he is inviting us up into that life with him. He is inviting us into the place of the cross where when Jesus was most taunted and most reviled and most laughed at, he nevertheless prayed, into your hand, I commit my spirit. Pray with me. 
Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the ways that you demonstrate your faithfulness to us. We thank you for the ways that you vindicate our faith, for the ways that you prove in reverse that trusting in you has been worthwhile for all the blessings that we receive from your hand. But we ask that you would protect us from letting those things seen become the source of our hope. That we would remain grounded in you. That we would keep our eyes on you. That we would not be overwhelmed by what others think of our faith or by the heavy cost that is borne by being a Christian, by trusting in you. Give us the courage of your spirit to live the life of your son and pray the prayer of the cross. We pray it in his name. Amen.